0: Why is the lab leak theory important? And what is it? Did the Wuhan lab accidentally leak the COVID virus? What are the implications if it's true that they did? Why didn't people think that they did earlier? What is the new evidence now? Lots of questions to be asked. Lots of questions to be answered. If you remember, I spoke about this uh, last week with Mehdi Hassan on the topic, but his opinions might have been a little bit different than mine. So this week we brought on probably the world's expert on the origins of the COVID virus. It's Matt Ridley, the author of Viral along with Alina Chan was the co-author. But this is an important guest for me because probably Matt Ridley has written the books that have influenced my thinking the most over the past decade or so. The, the Rational Optimist, the Evolution of Everything, many books that he's written that I've quoted hundreds of times or more. And I've always recommended his books. He's such a smart individual. And I really wanted to, I I feel blessed having this podcast that I get to ask the opinions of, of people like this that I've admired for so long. So here's Matt Ridley on
1: the lab leak theory. This isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher show.
0: Matt, you must be very busy right now with all this lab leak theory stuff.
2: Yeah, it's gone completely crazy. Um, I mean, it's it's strange how just one announcement from the U.S. government has really changed things, or these two announcements.
0: I mean, you were you basically wrote a book about the possibility of lab leak theory. Do you feel that your book wasn't listened to as much when it should have been? Like only now this all this
2: stuff is coming out. Yes and it looks like our book was published in between two peaks of lab leak, leak interest so in may 2021 there was the you know there was the letter to science which led to a lot of the media sort of revisiting its uh, conspiracy theory label and saying okay it does need to be taken seriously and that would have been a good time to publish and then now would have been a good time to publish but november 21 which is when we did publish and may 22 for the paperback were times when the world was saying, oh no, maybe it didn't come out of a lab. And also people were kind of fed up with hearing about the pandemic. It was coming to an end and they wanted to think about something else.
0: Well, you know, back in March 2020, I had on a world-class epidemiologist who insisted there was no lab leak and he had all sorts of evidence. They studied the genome of COVID and there was no evidence of any kind of manipulation. What's, going back to basics, and you've probably been through this
2: before, but like, What's changed? What's new? Um, quite a lot of minor things are new, but since March 2020, there's a whole bunch of things that are new. First of all, we know that the papers that justified it not not being from a lab were not based on good data. We now know how they were brought about. This was emerged from the congressional hearings this week. Um, basically, uh, Anthony Fauci uh, uh, sort of uh, asked for these papers to be written uh, to try and shoot down the lab leak. There was no good reason to do so. The pangolin virus didn't help, et cetera, et cetera. So those papers that influenced people, including me, in March 2020, that it wasn't a lab leak, are really not worth the paper they're written on. Um, In May 2020, two important bits of news broke – well, three, really. One, that we, we found out the source of the closest living relative that was in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and we found the story about it, and that was very interesting. Um, two, we uh, found out that there were no infected animals in the market. That was a really important announcement from George Gao, the, the uh, head of the Chinese CDC. Um, how do we know tested- that? Like,
0: There's tens of thousands of animals in that market. Uh, like, How do we know there's zero infected animals?
2: No, there are not tens of thousands. They only found 188 animals, and that includes stray cats and and rodents that they caught. It wasn't a big uh, wildlife market. It's not like one of these markets in uh, southern China where there are lots of of animals for sale. Um, There was a handful of bamboo rats. There were about 50 rabbits and hares on sale, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So 18 species of animal altogether, of which about slightly more than half were mammals. Now, they may have missed some, because later evidence emerged that in previous years there had been other illegal animals on sale in the market. And if that was true in 2019, then they might have missed one. Uh, But they tested 188 animals, which is all they found, uh, live ones. They also tested dead ones and so on. And they found the virus in the market, but they found the human version of the virus and they found it on countertops and in sewage and so on. Um, Then the, the other thing that happened in May 2020 was... Uh, Alina Chan published her paper saying, hang on, this virus is very well adapted from the get-go to human beings. And that's something that we now know that is widely agreed on. You know, lots of other virologists have now confirmed that, although they were reluctant to do so at the time, um, that this thing was really good at infecting human beings from the start, didn't need to evolve very much in the first few months, the way SARS did, and uh, was highly infectious. Robert Redfield the head of the US CDC made a big point of this at, his, at the congressional hearing this week so all three of those points in sort of march to may 2020 shifted the dial the big things that have happened since then are uh, more information about what experiments were being done at the Wuhan Institute of Virology um in particular experiments in humanized mice with Um, chimera viruses, in which they've swapped the spike gene from one virus to another, and these had increased infectivity by sometimes up to um, uh, 10,000-fold. So, you know, really quite risky gain-of-function experiments were going on with SARS-like coronaviruses. Um, Then the other crucial bit of information that dropped, because there's always been a a feature of this virus that has been hard to explain, it's called a furin cleavage site, um, and it's a an insertion of text at a key point in the spike gene that enables the spike protein to, to open up, and this enables it to be way more infectious. It's the reason we're having a respiratory pandemic rather than a, a gut infection, which is what the bats get from the, the equivalents of this virus. And explaining how it got that furin cleavage site, because it's the only SARS-like coronavirus that has one, uh, and they've now looked at hundreds, and none of the others have one, has been a big problem from the start. And if you remember, those papers in March 2020 said, don't worry, we'll find one in a wild bat quite soon. Well, they have still haven't three years later. Um, so how did that get there? Um, in t- September 21, a document dropped through a leak that is really important uh, here. It's called the uh, Diffuse proposal. And it was a grant application to DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency of the Pentagon, uh, for $14 million to do experiments on SARS-like viruses um, collected from bats. And it it was put in by the EcoHealth Alliance, which is a US group, but in collaboration with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Uh, And one of the experiments it proposed to do was to insert furin cleavage sites into novel SARS-like coronaviruses if they found one without one. And that's about as close as you can get to a recipe for making this virus. Um, Now, we don't know whether they did the experiment, and we know that the grant application was turned down. They didn't get the money from DARPA. Uh, But we also know that most of the work being done in Wuhan was being funded by the Chinese Academy of Sciences, and it's possible that what happened is when that experiment uh, wasn't funded in the U.S. to be done at the University of North Carolina, the Wuhan Institute of Virology said, okay, we'll go ahead and do that experiment instead, something like that. So... You know, the, but there's there's other things. I mean, there's a strange thing happened today, which I'll come back to if you like. Uh, which yeah. I don't quite know what to make of it, but it's it's an intriguing um, uh, finding. So there's little things dropping all the time, and for me, none of with one exception, none of them are pointing towards the market. They're all pointing towards the lab. The one exception is an analysis done by Michael Warraby and his colleagues, at the University of Arizona, of the early cases, the 2019 cases. Um, 174 of them were reported to the World Health Organization. These are people who picked up the virus before the end of 2019, mostly in December. Well, in fact, all in December. And uh, what Warrenby showed is that they are actually centered on that market. Even the ones that didn't have a direct connection with the market, they didn't work there or they didn't visit it, they were near it. Uh, And he said, well, that is pretty good evidence that the market is where it started. To which others replied, well, it's not really, because we still need to find the infected animal in the market. That's what we found with SARS very quickly. Um, And also, you're missing uh, about 90 cases that we know happened in 2019, including the crucial November cases, the earliest ones, which we have two sources on, uh, a leak to the South China Morning Post and a peer-reviewed paper in Chinese that that, that was briefly available, uh, which recorded some cases in uh, November, but didn't crucially tell us where they lived or who they were. And that's the bit of information we really need to know. Now, of course, if they're even earlier and they weren't near the market, then it would change the story. And there's another problem with the Warabi analysis, which is that up until the 18th of January, to get a pneumonia case tested for COVID, you had to live near the market. So in other words, it's a kind of circular argument. You know, they found they were living near the market because they were testing the ones near the market. You know, you're looking for your keys under the lamppost, as it were. You know, so for me, most of the evidence that's come forward in the last year or two has made the lab leak more likely and the market less likely. But we're by no means there. We don't have a cut-and-dried case at all. Now, what the evidence that the FBI is relying on and the Department of Energy, which caused it to change its mind, we don't know. But there's a hint from some off-the-record briefings that it concerns another lab in Wuhan called the Wuhan CDC, which was collaborating with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and which, by the way, is right next to the market. So it would explain that pattern of, of concentration around the market. Sorry, that was a very long answer.
0: No, no, that, that's interesting. And it's a good summary of what's been happening. So a lot of what's been happening recently is because of this intelligence report from the Department of Energy, which, by the way, I didn't know the Department of Energy had their own intelligence agency. But now, <laughs> due to all this, I, I know it. And so some intelligence agencies like the CIA, for instance, say no lab leak. And the Department of Energy Intelligence Agency says lab leak. What's the discrepancy?
2: I'm not sure we know what the CIA says, by the way. We don't know which of the... There are four agencies that say they think it wasn't a lab leak, two that say they don't know, and two that say uh, they think it was a lab leak, and only one of those is is moderate confidence, and that's the FBI that thinks it was a lab leak. We don't know what the discrepancy is. None of those agencies have shared their information. The House of Representatives passed a bill yesterday uh, asking the government to declassify the uh, data that they're relying on, and uh, the Senate has already passed such a bill. So it's now up to Joe Biden as to whether or not he vetoes such a bill. It was unanimously passed in both houses, by the way. Um, so, uh, you know, there is pressure now to, to show us your workings. Now, when we see the working, if we see the workings, uh, and they will, of course, use the argument that they don't want to endanger um, uh, human intelligence sources and things like that, but we may be very underwhelmed and we may say that on both sides of the argument, the people who think it was the market and the people who think it was the lab, um, that actually they're relying on basically reading my articles in the newspaper or or, or Alina well, uh, Chan's uh, um, uh, papers or something. Or, it, it's funny
0: you mention that because I was talking um, to Mehdi Hassan who runs the, he, he he hosts the Mehdi Hassan show on MSNBC and he said the, the main way people prepare to come on his show, if they're for the lab leak theory, is reading your book.
2: Oh, well, that helps, at least. That's a good sign. Yes. Um, <laughs> but the one thing that we've had lots of hints of, I mean, we've actually, it's been explicitly stated to us and to others um, by members of the Trump administration, State Department officials, um, but obviously, you know, we haven't seen the evidence for it, is that three People who worked at the Wuhan Institute of Virology were hospitalised in November 2019. Now we don't know what they were hospitalised for. It might have been broken legs, for all we know. Um, but the hint, you know, the, the suggestion is that some of those November cases that the Chinese simply won't tell us about are actually lab workers. Um, and there's there's a story which I can't substantiate and I don't know how to to handle uh, that. There's a a researcher who appears in group photographs at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and she then just disappears. And when challenged on this really quite early in the whole story, uh, the Chinese authorities eventually said, "Uh, no, it's nonsense. She's fine and well and she passes on the following message. Well, maybe, maybe not. You know, we just don't know. Um, so, uh, So that would be not the smoking gum, but it would be, a, you know, if, if the FBI came forward and said, the reason we think it started in the lab is because three of the earliest cases in November 2019 were people who worked at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That would be a pretty strong uh, hint.
0: Although, although you can argue they were, because the, the wet market was only a few miles away, you could argue they were all, all of the employees of the lab were customers of the wet market and so of the hundred or so cases believed to have come from the the web market or related to it, okay, three worked in the lab.
2: Yes, but if they're very early ones, if, you know, it, it, we think there were only nine cases in November that were diagnosed retrospectively diagnosed. Of course, nobody knew to look out for it in November, so it's a case of retrospective diagnosis. But um, we think there's only about nine people who caught it in November uh, that, that were found out about. So that that would be quite significant the story that's broken today that's intriguing and i again i don't know what to make of it yet and i haven't actually um, checked with alina who may think it's not as significant uh, as all that um is that the institute of Paste the Pasteur institute which is a paris-based research organization had a collaboration with a chinese lab and had founded this thing called the institute of Pasteur, Shanghai, and they had also founded another lab called Institute of Pasteur, Laos, which is in the country of Laos, and they've broken off that relationship with both of those institutes. Well, certainly with the Shanghai one, I'm not sure about the Laos one. Um, Today, they've announced that they're no longer collaborating with them. Now, there's been a story floating around for some weeks now that if you look at the Viruses that the French scientists collected from Laos and and announced in the middle of 2021, they have a pretty weird genomic structure such that they're way too similar to each other in some parts of the genome and way too different in others. And there are bioinformatics experts who are saying to to, uh, me and others, that suggests that these aren't real sequences. These are uh, sequences designed to fool us. Um, and the, the those... You see, the French scientists collect the virus, but they didn't do the sequencing. As far as we can make out, they sent them to the Pasteur Institute Shanghai in China for the sequencing. So they don't really know whether or not those are the real sequences of the viruses they sent. Now, those viruses are quite important because one of them is more closely related to SARS-CoV-2 than anything found in China. So it was quite an important paper that a lot of people relied on to say, well, hang on, if the closest relative comes from Laos, why are we suspecting the Wuhan Institute of Virology? Now, there's another reason for it, which is that some of the viruses collecting in Laos have been sent to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We've got evidence of that too, although we haven't got evidence for these particular viruses that that's what happened. So you can see why I'm a a little uncertain as to what this means, but I'd like to know the reasons why the French government, through the Pasteur Institute, has broken off relations with its Chinese uh, subsidiary in Shanghai.
0: You know, I I have a, a basic question on this, which is, given that there was a lab studying SARS viruses a few miles away from the wet market where it was believed to have started why isn't it just common sense that the two things might be connected considering that SARS has not really originated in this part of china previously
2: well that you know to, to the layman at least that geographical coincidence is the most striking feature a a bat coronavirus outbreak happens in the city with the biggest bat coronavirus research program in the world. And it turns out that the closest relative to that virus at the time was in the Wuhan Institute of Virology and had been uh, studied in the lab, had been worked on in the lab in 2018, the year before the pandemic. Now, those are pretty big coincidences. But coincidences do happen. Um, now, you know, a lot of people say, well, of course there was an institute of virology there because that's where the viruses are. Well, not true. They got the viruses from well over 1,000 miles away uh, from uh, southern Yunnan. They the, the, they sampled the bats near Wuhan and they never found these kind of viruses in them. And and why, again, did the initial epidemiologists who looked at the,
0: the SARS or the COVID uh, genome think that there wasn't any evidence of man-made
2: manipulation? well that's a, an interesting question and um the the argument goes that if you are going to manipulate a virus not just collect one and have an accident with it in the lab but if you're going to actually change its genes then you'll leave some trace of having done so there will be particular little things called restriction sites in the in the genome of the virus that will be a giveaway scars if you like from the plastic surgery that you've done um on the virus genome, it's not quite that simple, but that you know that's a that's a metaphor um well, there's two problems with that. one is that there are ways of doing it that don't leave scars. they're called the so-called no noceum methods that's named after a, a a midge that's so small you don't see it. Um, and uh, they were invented by Ralph Barrick of the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and have been used in Wuhan on previous experiments. so you wouldn't necessarily see the scars. And the other problem is that a paper appeared at the end of last year, which is very controversial. A lot of people think it's, it's, it's wrong. A lot of people think it's right. Uh, and it says, actually, there are restriction sites, as they're called. There are these scars. They are indistinguishable from the kind of natural scars you would find in a virus, sure. We can't tell whether they're artificial ones. But what we can tell is that they're too evenly spaced. Now, the way you assemble a virus from scratch under this so-called reverse genetic system that was invented in North Carolina and copied by Wuhan uh, is that you break the genome of the virus down into about seven or eight pieces, synthesize each piece, and then stitch them together. And in order to stitch them together, you have to have a particular sequence at the join. Uh, And that sequence, as I say, it could be a natural sequence you can't tell whether it's a natural or an artificial sequence, but it is nonetheless a joining sequence, if you see what I mean. And if you analyze most viruses, you find that th- when where you look for those sequences, they're quite well, they're quite randomly spaced. In SARS-CoV-2, they're pretty regularly spaced. Right. Now, in order to do that test, you've got to guess which technique of several the the lab was doing, and then look for the specific sequences that those specific enzymes would home in on. So they might not have used that technique, and in which case you're looking in, in the wrong direction, uh, etc. So it's not definitive, but the argument there is no evidence of genetic engineering in this virus, which a lot of people made, as you say, in the first few months, was on the whole made by, as you say, epidemiologists and people like that, who weren't keeping up with the latest techniques in virology, where you can do this without leaving traces.
0: I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting... And and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, at I, first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, You have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like, if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long. And both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So You know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now, you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop really. I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs will pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ziprecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So, you know, another question is why are so many people concerned or, or curious about this? So, There's been lab leaks before. There was a a famous case in the 70s in the Soviet Union. Anthrax got accidentally leaked from a lab. Many people died, not millions, but enough, you know, 80 people died or so. And it came and went, and that was that. What's, I guess, the idea is if there is a lab leak, China could feel culpable, and maybe other countries are going to be upset at them. This could affect relations with China. But what's the importance of this?
2: Well, I think the importance is high. As you say, we've had plenty of lab leaks before. Uh, there was an outbreak of brucellosis in China just a few months before this pandemic, which was traced to a, a vaccine production facility which had used the wrong kind of disinfectant, for example. Uh, brucellosis is not a lethal disease in human beings. Uh, it's a bacterial disease, not a viral disease. So there's, you know, it's not all that similar. But it, nonetheless, it was an example of a lab leak that happened in China just a few months before the pandemic began so that's just to, just to show they they happen all the time but they have never killed people on this scale before um uh, it, it, the anthrax outbreak you mentioned in 1979 in Sverdlovsk in the Soviet Union which was denied for many years it took about 8 years to for, before they finally admitted that that's what it was that killed 65 people um the flu outbreak that resulted from inadequately killed uh flu virus vaccines in uh china in 1977 which is now widely agreed to have been a, a lab mistake um was a pretty mild global flu epidemic um and you know went it will have killed people but uh, you know not on a, a significant scale so uh you know to to have Somewhere between fifteen and twenty million people dead, and the entire world economy turned upside down by a lab leak is new and is terrifying. And this is the worst pandemic, remember, since nineteen eighteen. You know, this is this is not a. Uh, it's more than a hundred years since we've had a, 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 something as lethal as this in the human uh, human population. Um, so that's one reason why people mind about it. Uh, And after all, you know, we owe it to the memory of the people who died to try and find out why. But there's two main reasons why we need to find out why. And one is so that we can prevent it happening again. Uh, You know, this kind of of gain-of-function virology research is basically continuing to this day. And if it's lethal, if it's not lethal, but if it's risky, we need to know. Um, uh, Likewise, if it comes from... Markets. We need to know which species introduced it into the human race and find out and make sure we're not uh, um, consuming or selling those species in in markets. Um, But there's another reason we need to know, and that is rogue regimes and bad actors, terrorist organizations, for example, are watching this with some relish, uh, at least so I'm told by my friends in intelligence, and are saying oh, so all we need is a very infectious virus. It doesn't even need to be very lethal. You know, it can have quite a low fatality rate, and it still turns the world upside down and kills 15 to 20 million people as long as it's infectious enough so that you cannot control it. Um, And even better, if we did that, you know, if we in North Korea, say, did that to the world, the World Health Organization would spend three years... Vaguely looking at what happened, and then shrug their shoulders and say, "We don't know how it happened," so we wouldn't even get blamed. That's scary, you know. I'm afraid whatever you whatever happens in this in the in the aftermath of this ap- epidemic, there is, I'm afraid, little doubt that um, biological terrorism is going to have to be considered at a, a greater risk. And and
0: you know it all. Just given how you describe it, it almost seems inevitable in the sense that technology is only going to get better and easier. And the ability to do this is going to get more and more accessible to scientists and other people. So now I'm I'm talking to you as the author of The Rational Optimist, which is probably the single book I've recommended the most to people in my life. I want you, I want you to know. So it's such
2: a great book, The Rational Optimist. What does the rational optimist say? Yeah, well, The Rational Optimist covers his his back by saying that in the last chapter of the book, he did say, look, things will go wrong in the 21st century and that will include pandemics. So I I, I did just (laughs) put that caveat in. But, you know, most of what's come out of biotechnology has been good. You know, we've got fantastic uh, treatments for um, diabetics and uh, hemophiliacs. Uh, We've got fantastic vaccines and pharmaceuticals and so on that are saving lives on a massive scale. Um, if foolish and risky experiments have led to a bad outcome from biotechnology, then we've got to learn from that. And the way we do that is the way we do it with nuclear. We say to every country in the world, you've jolly well got to sign up to um, uh, international inspections to check that you're not doing this kind of thing. And if you don't, we'll treat you like a pariah. Now, doesn't quite work with nuclear. You know, there are secret nuclear things going on. But on the whole, uh, you know, the International Atomic Energy uh, Agency or whatever it is um, does put a lot of pressure on a lot of regimes uh, not to do secret and dangerous uh, research on this kind of thing. And, you know, we don't even know what people are doing in the biological area. Um, th- we know that there, there's about a dozen. Top secure top biosafety labs that have opened in the last couple of years um, since the pandemic began, mostly in Asia. There's a gold rush going on here. And uh, more and more people working on these kind of things. And it's quite easy to say, okay, let's work on all sorts of things. But let's not do gain of function in viruses, particularly viruses that might infect human beings. That really is looking for gas leaks with a lighted match. But you know, like w-
0: with nuclear energy or with nuclear weapons, there's a higher bar. You need a rare resource, which is the specific, you know, types of, of uranium or plutonium or or whatever that could, you know, contribute to making a nuclear bomb. With this, there isn't that kind of. Bar to start actively researching and creating a deadly virus, so people could hide their facilities much more easily, even if they agreed to an international agreement.
2: Yes and no. Um, you 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 write that that uh, you know you need a lot less unique materials, uh, and an awful lot of the biotech expertise is is routine, and you can acquire it by doing a PhD in some country and then coming back to another country and so on. But the actual work to juice up a virus, to make it more infectious in human cells and use humanized mice to train it and manipulate its spike gene and insert the right sequences in the right place to do that kind of thing, that is very, very high-tech stuff still. That only a handful of labs around the world know about. It's not the kind of thing that uh, you know your school chemistry set can can achieve. Um, it probably will get easier to do it, but it's not yet um, easily within reach of of the nutters. That's why it's actually quite important that we we react to this pandemic and and start to put in place international agreements to, to limit this kind of research and to keep an eye on the people who are who know how to do it and make sure that they've not suddenly um, bought a one-way ticket to Pyongyang or something like that.
0: No, I, I, I agree with you. And uh, and and again, though, like you said, it's not yet um, accessible in your high school chemistry set, but it will be. I mean, 20 years ago, it cost a billion dollars to sequence the human genome. Now it's some spit in $20 and you get the results a a week later. Uh, So it's, it's one of those fields that has a Moore's law effect. It's growing exponentially and 10 years, 20 years, it will be in the high school chemistry set potentially uh, unless regulations, you know, try to prevent that, which only goes so far. So I, I guess, I guess there's nothing to stop it really in the future. If someone's a bad actor and wants to do
2: this. That's a very depressing thought, and it's a part. It's part of what you rightly uh, spot as um, just a little bit less optimism coming from me than there was twenty years ago, ten years ago when I wrote the book. Um, uh, 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 and and yeah, I mean, it 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 may come to that. But remember, there's other things happening too, like our ability to spot these things as they start to clamp down on them, to stop them spreading, are also improving, and so is our ability to produce vaccines. Now, in this case, remember, the Chinese authorities insisted that the only way you could catch this virus was from an animal until the 18th... No, it was around the middle of January, okay? Up until that point, they said there is no human-to-human transmission, and that was repeated by the World Health Organization. Now, well before that, healthcare workers in Wuhan were picking it up from patients. So if they had said to doctors and nurses in Wuhan's hospitals, uh, on the 1st of January, when they first realized what was happening, or you know, a couple of days before that, if they'd said, we may be uh, in a scary situation here, we don't think it just can be caught from animals, we think it may be uh, something that is spreading human to human, please take every precaution, and by the way, let's cancel the Chinese New Year celebrations in Wuhan in a couple of weeks, and a few things like that, then, you know, who knows? It could have been nipped in the bud. So there is a, you know, there's also a very big question to uh, ask about the um, failure to act properly. And, you know, in those two weeks, when they were denying human-to-human transmission, they were also persecuting, punishing, uh, and censoring healthcare workers who were saying help there's something scary happening in my hospital and people are catching this thing uh you know th- these guys were were persecuted in a very unpleasant way for saying that so it, it I, that wouldn't have happened in uh, another country and shouldn't have happened in that country <laughs>
0: You point out in one of your books that the speed of innovation in general is increasing in every industry because the initial speed of innovation in computing. So the fact that computers have grown exponentially in speed and and power has contributed to our, uh, our understandings in genomics, energy, and on and on in every single industry
2: well not every single i think i i i may have said that but if so i, I don't believe it anymore um <laughs> because I, I think that there are industries like transport where um yes there are the computers are contributing to improvements like self driving cars and things like that but they're not speeding up transport you know we haven't see, we've lived i most of my life uh, we've not seen an improvement in the speed at which human beings can travel around the world um that yeah, happened do you think to my. Because-
0: that's because of regulation like i I've, I've wondered this too like the the time it takes to go from new york to la is slower than it was 50 years ago um is that because of technology or because of regulation because clearly we could build you know Mach 3 capabilities in in maybe a slightly bigger than a fighter jet smaller than an airbus 330 but the technology's there
2: yeah it's a very good question i think it's a combination of both uh, hitting some kind of technological limit, some kind of uh, diminishing returns effect, where the cost of reaching greater speed uh, is just astronomical. And, uh, and as you say, some degree of sort of regulation. You know, look at all the security we have to go through now at airports um, because of all the hijackings and bombings that happened uh, in previous periods, and we always add to them. We never take them away. Well, we're taking a few away at the moment, but normally we don't. And, uh, you know, so um, but you know the the fact that we haven't got routine space travel um, is not really about regulation. It's because it's just ludicrously expensive to put people in space and pretty difficult even now. And uh, so you and I can't buy a ticket to the moon, even though it's more than fifty years since Neil Armstrong uh, first trod on the moon. Um, so I, I think that. Um, uh, the the focus... The other interesting point, by the way, is that computing and communication changed very little in the first half of the 20th century as far as the average consumer was concerned. They had the phone at the beginning, they had the phone at the end of that period. Um, and then suddenly it changed dramatically. So I think different industries do go different speeds. But you're right that computing has infected lots of other industries. So where where
0: are you most optimistic now? In a, in a, You know... Always the world seems scary. Like 2008, it looked like capitalism was dead. In the 1960s, there was so much unrest. Everyone was unsure about the future. Obviously, March 2020 and and the pandemic and the shutdown of the economy is still leading to, you know, not clear, you know, consequences. Where where are you most optimistic now in your your thinking?
2: My answer is a one-word answer, Africa. When I wrote The Rational Optimist, there were a lot of people still saying then... Yes, Asia has seen incredible improvements in human living standards, but Africa can't possibly do that. Um, There are too many people. The birth rate is too high. The diseases are too bad. The population pressure, the the warfare, all the other things happening in Africa are going to ensure that it remains mired in the deepest, darkest poverty. That's a quote from an environmentalist I quoted in the book, the deepest, darkest poverty. It's going to remain mired in. I said in the book, I don't think that's the case. I think Africa is starting to see the sort of improvements in living standards that we saw uh, in Asia a generation ago. And I've been right about that. The last 10 years have been spectacular for Africa. The number of wars has shrunk dramatically. Uh, The number of people dying of HIV has shrunk dramatically. It was going up in the 1990s, and then it leveled off. The number of people dying of malaria was going up till 2003, and then it started coming down again, largely thanks to a very simple innovation called the insecticide-treated bed net, um, promoted very much by the Gates Foundation, which is why you know, some people are very critical of the Gates Foundation. I, I think they've done some wonderful things. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, if you live in... Um, Kenya or Nigeria or Ghana or somewhere or Ethiopia, you are seeing huge improvements in your uh, longevity, your child mortality, your risk of catching diseases, um, but also your economic prospects and your chances of uh, improving your um, your your lifestyle. Uh, and by the way, you know, what happens when you improve um living standards is that birth rates come down pretty fast the birth rates collapsing in many parts of africa that doesn't stop the population continuing to go up for many years but uh, you know uh, africa's the poorest continent it's one of the most populated continents and it's now seeing extraordinary rates of economic growth and improvements in 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 human living standards and i think that's great
0: i mean meanwhile though in the in in the us and in europe uh birth rates are down below the replacement rate so the replacement right. rate is everybody needs to have 2.1 kids to keep the population going um US and and Europe is 1.6 and 1.3 respectively so so are we going to see US Europe collapse in population while Africa becomes maybe the the primary continent on the planet
2: yeah i mean on present trends nigeria is going to be one of the most populous countries in the world by the end of this century. Uh, You know, China's population is starting to shrink um, uh, and its birth rate is extraordinarily low. Um, uh, India's birth rate is, uh, I think, now below replacement rate. Um, uh, You know, so in terms of the... You know, when we get to between 9 and 10 billion people, which is where we now think the population will peak in the second half of the 21st century the proportion of those who live in Africa will be will be very high and will be continuing to grow because uh, African population will grow long after that, even as European and Asian and Latin American populations fall. Um, uh, so, uh, and and yeah, a lot of people say it's a terrible crisis having a very low birth rate because you've got fewer and fewer workers to uh, earn the money to pay for the benefits of more and more retired people uh, and things like that. Um But on the whole, I don't join in that pessimism too much, because I can remember when I was young, people saying the population explosion is unstoppable, and it's going to lead to mass famines and so on. And so the fact that we are heading for a leveling off of the population, it's growing slower and slower every year, and it'll probably level off sometime between 2050 and 2017, you know, we can't be sure, you know, it might speed up again a bit, it might slow down even faster. Um, uh, that, to me, is on the whole good news, because it, it, it enables us to envisage a world in which there is space for nature and other things.
0: And, you know, now for you personally, you know, you've you've written so many books about so many different topics, all such intelligent books, what's next for you? And this leads to a bigger question, which is, do you ever see yourself slowing down? Like, does there? How have you changed career-wise as you've gone from your 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, and beyond?
2: Well, a month ago I turned 65. That used to be called retirement age, didn't it? And um, I have retired actually. I, I almost anything that involves a committee meeting, I've given up. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <smart>. Um, <laughs> And I left the House of Lords uh, a year ago. I said, right, that's enough. I've had nine years in, in Parliament. Uh, I, I don't want to spend so much time on a train going back and forth to London. Um, uh, so uh, I am slowing down in all sorts of ways. I'm enjoying life. Um, but uh, writing is something I really enjoy doing. So I, I want to keep keep going with that until until the words no longer make sense. Well, what's next? What's, what's the next book? I'm working on a book, but I'm not yet talking about it because uh, I'd, I'll get bored of talking about it if I talk about it too much.
0: <laughs> well, you know, Matt Ridley, I really appreciate you coming on to talk about, you know, this very topical thing in the news right now, the lab leak theory. And I agree, it's super important. We, we, I hope we learn something from any documents that are declassified. And I look forward to continuing these chats. Always a pleasure to have you on the podcast.
2: I've really enjoyed it again. Thanks so much, James. It's kind of you to have me on. Thank you, Matt. <laughs>